All we know of Habakkuk, who is known as one of the so-called minor prophets because the book of Habakkuk is so short, is what appears in his book. We don't know who his father was, which king ruled over him, or his hometown. It's believed, based on the contents of the book, that he was some sort of cult prophet, that he was probably based in the temple, and that he had a strong local following. An intriguing aspect of his writings is that Habakkuk seems to openly question the wisdom of God. But he certainly prophesizes that the righteous can count on being vindicated in the end, and that evil people can count on perpetual punishment administered directly by God. Parts of the book of Habakkuk were probably used in worship services, especially parts of the very poetic third chapter of the book. The book of Habakkuk is intended for those who are caught in a waiting period. God has made a promise, and it is yet to be fulfilled. We've turned to God, but we've not yet felt the touch of God's grace in return. The book of Habakkuk is about patience and waiting for God to decide when the time is right. Most of all, the book of Habakkuk tells us that whether it's punishment or a blessing, God will indeed answer in time. The most significant historical event referenced in the book of Habakkuk that helps us date the time of its writing is the invasion of the Babylonians, which is prophesied in the book. Interestingly, Habakkuk refers to the Babylonians as Chaldeans, who are a people living in southern Babylon. This is part of southern Iraq today. The Chaldeans were a semi-nomadic tribe, and it was common at the time for Babylonians in general to be referred to as Chaldeans. Habakkuk refers to the impending invasion of Judah, the southern part of Israel, which includes Jerusalem. And so this dates the book of Habakkuk to about 1612 and about 598 B.C. However, the writing strongly suggests that the writer is aware that Babylon's control of Israel will be fleeting, and so perhaps the writing was done later. It's more likely that Habakkuk's writings were created over a period of time and only later compiled together and then placed into the collection of Jewish spiritual writings. Habakkuk pleads with God to end violence and punish the wicked. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not hear. Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. The law is paralyzed and justice never comes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. Here's God's response to Habakkuk. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings, not their own. 
They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men, whose own might is their God. Habakkuk knows that his people have become corrupt and sinful. The justice system of the Israelites has come to serve evil, not good. Indeed, justice has been perverted so that those who break the law of God are the ones who are rewarded. God replies that, yes, this is true. And God will use the Babylonians to motivate the Israelites to find their way back to God. In chapter 2 of this three-chapter book, Habakkuk makes it clear that in the end, God's people will be restored. They will come back to God. It is the Babylonians and all those who do harm to others who will suffer. Here's an edited version of what Habakkuk prophesizes will happen to any people who oppress other peoples and who worship human-made idols instead of the living God. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, because you've plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds the city on iniquity. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies? Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake to a silent stone, arise. Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there's no breath in it at all. There's something very critical to note about the book of Habakkuk. The author's primary goal is not to prophesize that God will always punish evil and that we must therefore repent. That's a common message in the Old Testament, and over and over in multiple places in the Bible, God is seen using foreign armies to punish the wayward Israelites and bring them back to God. But Habakkuk's message is not a negative message. Habakkuk wants us to live productive and active and abundant lives. Indeed, the purpose of God enforcing God's laws is to protect us to ensure that we can be the recipient of the gifts that God offers. God promises that if we're faithful, if we treat other humans and their property with respect, we'll be blessed. In fact, our ability to find joy lies within us because God is within us. We don't depend on the world around us to give us hope and peace. If we do live moral, ethical lives, Habakkuk tells us that even in times of pain and deprivation, God will bring joy. The book of Habakkuk's third and final chapter contains a prayer of his. 
It is written as a hymn or a song, and there are instructions on how to perform it embedded in the song. Many scholars believe that this material is a very ancient prayer dating back to the early days of the Israelite people and that it was inserted in the book of Habakkuk. Here is its ending. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, and the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. Biblical scholars and anyone who reads the Bible sees repeatedly this cycle of freedom and enslavement that confronted the people of God over a period of thousands of years. When they were free, their nation was a theocracy, and the goal was that their judges and then their kings would enforce God's laws, not the laws that originated with people. But when they stopped living this way, when they became corrupt, God sent in other nations to punish them, to motivate them to return to God. No matter what evil the people of God fall into, God pursues them. What Habakkuk is saying is that God has a magnificent purpose in remaining in the lives of the Israelites, of never abandoning them, even when they abandon God. Compare the following two views on human strength. First, this is how God, through the mouth of Habakkuk, describes powerful people who conquer and manipulate and enslave others. Then they sweep like the wind and go on, guilty men, whose own might is their God. That's who their God is their own physical and political power. But people who live in a way that's consistent with the laws that God has laid down for us, we're strong too. Here's the second view from the end of Habakkuk. Rather than our God being our strength, we get our strength directly from God. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. One of my biggest frustrations when I was a professor at the University of Colorado in Boulder was the brutal politics and the lack of human decency. I started out no different than any other academic doing everything I could to promote myself which is what is demanded of professors in most research-oriented universities. If you're an academic, it's all about you, how much you can bring in in research dollars, how many papers you can publish, how many PhD students you can place in prominent places. I took to heart the advice I was given by my superiors and put extremely little emphasis on teaching. It worked, too. I was very successful 
and I was promoted to full professor at a very young age. But God blessed me. God sent in the Chaldeans in the form of an eye disease that caused me to incrementally lose my vision over a period of a couple decades. Then when I was suddenly the person who was in need, I saw the academics around me for who they really were. They wouldn't accommodate me in the slightest by giving me a teaching assistant to help me grade assignments that I could not read. I found myself having to do everything I did before, but with very limited vision. They had no humanity. They didn't care about me as a person. The university only cared what I could do for it. To be honest, I'm quite confident that they broke the Americans with Disabilities Act by not giving me reasonable support that, quite frankly, would hardly have cost them anything. But I did discover that God sent the Chaldeans after me for a reason. God was reminding me that my God wasn't my brute strength, what I could do on my own with my own eyes. Rather, my strength comes from God. I discovered the joy of being a sincere, hardworking teacher who cared deeply about students. I was able to salvage myself morally. I began to be more concerned with training young people than with promoting myself as an academic. I renewed my relationship with God and eventually my vision was restored by two corneal transplants. About a year ago, I was walking down a corridor at Boulder Community Hospital where I am a chaplain. I love being there. I was getting back to some referrals to see patients after answering a call for a full trauma in the ER. A young man had been riding a bike when he was hit by a car. He was dead when he arrived at the hospital. His young widow had been in the ER and had needed someone to be with her. As I was headed back to the chaplain's office, I placed a call to someone in the church where I'm a pastor to offer some support over a crisis that person was having. I talked to that person for several minutes as I walked through the hospital, and then just as I was hanging up, I realized that I recognized someone who was standing in a waiting area. It was a professor from the department I had worked at at the University of Colorado in Boulder. He was a bit older than me and had retired about the same time as me. I stopped and said hello. Remember now, I had just witnessed a tragic death and had talked to someone who was going through a very gruesome personal experience. But this professor, I noticed, had a curious look on his face. And then he said, Buzz, I've never seen you looking so calm and at peace like you are now. That says it all. Thank you.